Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Wednesday, March the 13th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. With me in studio, our political editor, Pat Leahy. And yes, it is Brexit, 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 all the time, every time at the moment. Another big vote in Westminster last night saw Theresa May suffer another crushing defeat. Later, we'll be discussing May's position and the the whole thing, really, with uh, with Fintan O'Toole. But first, I'm joined on the line by the Brexit correspondent of The Guardian, Lisa O'Carroll. Lisa O'Carroll, in the never-ending series of Blackadder, which seems to be unfolding at uh, Westminster every day now, um, what news? What news? Wow. Well, we're midday Wednesday. We've got the key vote on no deal tonight. But the extraordinary thing, even this morning, is, you know, you mentioned Blackadder. It's an absolute... There's another an air of another world um, in Britain at the moment, certainly in the Westminster bubble. You know, you had a cabinet meeting this morning and... The Tory party is, is, is really dysfunctional, totally dysfunctional. So there's no discipline in the party anymore. There are leaks within minutes or, you know, while the cabinet meeting is going on. So we learned this morning that uh, Theresa May was trying to whip some key amendments. And one of them is the Malthouse Amendment, which is quite interesting. You might remember that from February when people like Jacob Rees-Mogg put together this within the party group. So JRM and Nicky Morgan, people like that, who was um, a Remainer. And it it, uh, was calling for a sort of a a version of the ERG's plans for um, exit um, last year, which was redrafting of the backstop involving technology, trusted trader status, uh, number plate recognition, all of that. But interestingly, what I went, went back and had a look at it just now, and interestingly, it also talked about uh, an extension of the transition period until until 2021, by which time the idea would be that they got the extension that they would notify the EU that they were going to do this and carry out the trade talks in parallel with um, discussions on on a withdrawal, which is, which is interesting because of the EU suggestion of a 21-month period to a, an extension to Article 50. So um, anyway, we'll see where that goes, whether, that's, whether that um, gets uh, voted on to this afternoon and tonight. There, there, the there, was some at di- 7 o'clock. there was some discussion, Lisa, that, that uh, earlier today I saw reports in, in the Guardian site that, um, that she wanted to whip against it and she was just you know, shot down by her own cabinet. No, that's right. And a few of them threatened to resign. As I said, it's total dysfunction. And we had one of our political correspondents up in the office today who was talking about how relationships have totally broken broken down. There are people who used to be friends who can't talk to each other. That uh, um, Before, when it, you know people would communicate secretly on a WhatsApp group, now they're openly slagging each other off on national TV. I mean, it's 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 Parliament in breakdown, and um, the the big question is where this is going to go. So we'll have our vote tonight, and then another vote tomorrow on a potential extension to Article Fifty, and then we've got the um, European Council meeting next week. Do we have indicative votes on various options next week? That's also very very difficult because indic- indicative votes would not be about a withdrawal agreement, but they would be about 
um, a future trade relationship, which is a whole different different ball game. Um, uh, so, so uh, you know, this, the, all options, bar I would say, general election, are in the air at the moment. Well, indeed, and. Is it not the case, or at least it seems to me to be the case, and tell me if I'm wrong, that we are now at a real end of the beginning or beginning of the end moment and there isn't, you know, the scope for um, let's just get a little bit more clarity on what the Commons would actually vote yes to and then go running back to Juncker and Barnier and see if they can give anything more than that. That's just not going to cut it anymore, is it? No, 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 it's not. I think everybody's agreed on that. However, if she has, I, her strategy would be to have one last vote. And as you know, they published two key no deal papers today, one on tariffs and one on Northern Ireland. And the idea behind that is to um, basically scare the Brexiters and the DUP into um, the stark realisation that actually no deal is really, really bad. Um, and the better option is to sign her deal, which has always been her strategy, but she has she didn't quite get there. Well, she was 149 votes short yesterday um so i there are there are lots of people who think that we go to the council of europe next next week and you're then you are 16 days down so then we're under 10 days down and that the closer and closer you get to the 29th the more real a no deal option becomes and um becomes very very unpalatable for brexiters who think article extension equals softer brexit or remain I mean, obviously what we saw yesterday yet again was this, you know, the words humiliation and catastrophe were being bandied around with a still substantial, you know, very substantial three-figure vote in the Commons against May's deal. But earlier in the day yesterday, before um, Geoffrey Cox issued his statement, there seemed to be a possibility of at least, if, if not the... Uh, the uh, the deal passing, at least that uh, majority against it being substantially reduced. Uh, did, is, that, is that the case? And if it is the case, does it mean that there's still some slim hope being laid out that a, that a third go at it from Theresa May no. under the circumstances you've described with the fear of a no deal having been put in to scare the bejesus out of everybody? I think that optimism yesterday, it, you know, a lot of people thought that, you know, there was even a chance that she might get the deal across the line. It all rested on Geoffrey Cox's legal advice. And if the DUP had agreed with that, you know, if he had changed his legal advice and said he was no longer um, of the opinion that the backstop meant um, Northern Ireland or the UK would be indefinitely trapped in this this awful arrangement, then the DUP might have um, swung behind May and with that maybe 20, 30, 40, 50, 80 ERG votes. Um, but he surprised everybody, I think, by um, announcing that his legal opinion hadn't changed and the dial just, you know, just swung 180 degrees. Um, and, and that's not going to change now. Um, but I do think there, there will be there is a split in the ERG and there will be members of the ERG who didn't who didn't who weren't um, switchers yesterday who have still got the potential to be switchers if they think um a, a softer Brexit or remain um, is actually a reality. Um, and, you know, there's an, there's an air of, there's an air of kind of arrogance in the tour in part of the ERG. You could see that with the interview with uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg yesterday, a lengthy interview he did with Sky, and he's talking about how that option of, of um, a softer Brexit was a phantom at the moment. So he thought it was very safe to vote um, against the deal, you know. Um, but I think as we, get, as we get closer to the 29th, that may not be the case. Pat, what's your read? Lisa, well, I just wanted to ask Lisa um, what her view on this. There seems to be a bit of Westminster chatter uh, about 
this morning from a number of people on the possibility of a third vote before the European Council next week after, say, the um, assuming that the House votes, votes overwhelmingly tonight for, um, uh, for to, to rule out no deal and then votes tomorrow uh, to look for an extension, uh, Europe making it clear that, uh, that this is the only deal on the table and the mood seems to be certainly this morning, seems to be hardening considerably in Brussels. Do you think that there's any chance that the Commons could actually vote to accept this deal? Or is, is it dead now? No, I think there's, there's always a chance. And I think, you know, we get past tonight, she'll win comfortably, or she's expected to win comfortably. You know, who can make predictions these days? But tomorrow, when there is a vote to extend Article 50, that is the moment when the Brexiters and the DUP might go, actually, we're now facing reality. Um, and this is a soft Brexit. And that is worse than, um, that is our wor- remain. And that's, wor- that's worse for them than, than actually what they want, which is a no deal. But doesn't it depend on what that extension would be? Should an extension be granted in the first place? And that's a very moot point, as, as noises from the EU have, have indicated. That, that from a particular hard Brexit um, perspective, uh, a limited extension, taking account of the, the realities of the European Parliament elections, of two months or so, um, mightn't, mightn't be the worst option. But surely what really frightens them is the thing we've heard a little bit about, which is a much longer extension. Yeah, a much longer extension means the possibility of a soft Brexit or a, a you know, national unity government. Um, uh, so, yeah, I agree. The shorter, the better for them. And, and there, is, there is a theory that Jacob Rees-Mogg is playing, and Steve Baker in particular, the engine of the ERG, is playing a very, very canny game by keeping Mrs. May on, you know, on tender hooks, um, giving her the idea that there is still, still some hope that there will be more switchers and taking her right down to the line to the 28th and then, you know, more or less mugging her over the line into a no deal. Um, so, you know, that's what the ERG is about, is defaulting to WTO or, or you know, at, at best a Canada-style arrangement. And Pat, that's a strategy I, I, that could I just work. Don't, I just don't buy the idea that anybody is operating to a masterful strategy behind the scenes here because every piece of evidence that we've seen thus far suggests the exact opposite. A that cunning there isn't, plan, a cunning plan. That there, isn't a mass, that there isn't a careful and devious strategy. There's just a series of accidents and the thing is trundling down the line, as Lisa says, towards, uh, towards a hard Brexit. I still think that's an unlikely outcome, but it's certainly more likely, given the inability, given the... I mean, astonishing, complete falling apart of political authority in the British government. I mean, Lisa talked about, uh, you know, the cabinet uh, earlier on. There is now no cabinet government in the UK as we understood it. There is no government acting as a collective uh, authority. And it seems to me that, you know, whatever you know, is the outcome of the appeal, the the presumed appeal for uh, an Article 50 extension, that this kind of crisis of political authority in Britain uh, can only be solved by a general election. There's no guarantee that it will be solved by a general election, but they simply cannot go on with the current commons and the current government because they're incapable of making any decisions uh, about the future of the country. And if a 
government cannot make decisions about the future of the country. It cannot govern. What do you think the view in Westminster is on that, Lisa? Well, there are two things I'd pick up. One on the ERG, I, you would underestimate how organised they are. I hadn't realised until a colleague of mine did a podcast here on The Guardian, which is well worth listening to, um, about the ERG and how well organised they are. It's not just a WhatsApp group that they have. They're like a party within a party. They put somebody up... Um, uh, for all media throughout the day, they are texting all the journalists. They are, you know, they're working like a major force down in Westminster. So that, that's the point on the ERG I was going to make. And then on, on where we go, a general election, I think that I don't think that is likely. Um, under the Fixed uh, Term Parliament Act, what you will get is if, if she carries on like this, um, there is a point where the uh, parliament will be given two weeks to form a government, which could be a, a government of national unity. It could be, uh, you know, it doesn't have to be a Tory-led government. It could be a Labour-led government. It could be a combination, a coalition. Um, it could have a Labour head, prime minister, or it could have a, have a you know, a figure like David, David Liddington. Um, I think that's where we're going in the short term. Um, and well, well, going in that direction surely then is exactly what the ERG fears because a, a government, a cross-party government formed on that basis would be by definition a soft, soft Brexit government, would it not? Yes, it would. It would. And, and, and that is to um, that is to Theresa May's favour, isn't it, in the next, you know, that is why you think there is still a chink of hope but that, that all these the nightmares, party, doesn't it? Yeah, and and, and, and you have all these nightmare nightmare scenarios. Yes, that's right. She's not she's not prepared to put the nation before the party. Um, and you would question how many MPs on both sides actually um, would be prepared to abandon their party loyalties to form a government of national unity um, and work with, you know, lifelong rivals. Pat, what's the view in Dublin now? What's the view in, in, in government buildings? Was there a sense um, the other night when the late night deal was concluded that something of consequence had been um, conceded by the EU at that point and that perhaps the, the Irish government had had to shift its position and, and what is the situation now on the, on the Irish perspective? I think there was a sense the other night that this was a concession by Ireland and the EU, particularly some of the language in the unilateral declaration that accompanied the agreed documents uh, the other night. Now, it certainly didn't give the British government what its primary asks were, which were uh, you know, an 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 end date for the backstop or a unilateral way uh, out of it, but it did uh, give them an awful lot of what they wanted and they said they needed in terms of how the process of agreeing a trade deal would be accelerated, various mechanisms for doing that, and a somewhat convoluted but nonetheless visible exit from the backstop, albeit within the terms already laid out within the withdrawal agreement. So there was a sense in Dublin that they had made a concession. And I think part of the political discussion that the Cabinet had late on Monday night was about managing the politics of of that concession. I'm not sure how many people believed that, uh, that the deal was going to go through the House of Commons the following day, but they were they were going on the basis that Mrs May had presumably, as a first step, squared off her own Attorney General, which would unlock uh, DUP votes, therefore unlock many ERG votes, and if not, 
win the vote the following day at least get within shouting distance of the vote which that would proved make a not, third vote. Which proved, of course, not to be the case. And wasn't that, isn't that one of the amazing political miscalculations of the last, of the last few months? It fell at the first hurdle. Not, it wasn't just that the numbers came up short in the House of Commons, but that strategy fell at the first hurdle because Mrs May had not squared off her own Attorney General, who is, let us not forget, a member of her government government and had been negotiating on her behalf the previous week in Brussels. And there was just incredulity yesterday in government buildings uh, and, and, uh, and, and around the doll that, uh, that, that Mrs May hadn't displayed the political nous sufficiently to have, uh, to have her ag- attorney general uh, on well, board. Doesn't that, that reminds me of back in December 2017, she hadn't squared off her, her you know, the party that props their government up, the DUP. I mean, you know, her, 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 her skill set falls way short of what you expect in a, you know, in a leader in a nation like the UK. That's a very polite way of putting something that we put a little bit more bluntly in this studio <laughs> in the past, which is that Mrs May is not very good at politics. Now, normally you would not expect somebody who isn't very good at politics to become prime minister. But of course, she became prime minister in very unusual uh, circumstances. And the great irony of this is now that there doesn't really appear to be an alternative prime minister despite the fact that and and you know i mean there's a there's an there's an element of the pathetic fallacy about uh, mrs may standing croaking at the dist- at the dispatch box last night unable to speak unable to function no authority in her cabinet no authority in her party no authority in parliament no authority in the country and yet still Nobody is saying she has to go as Prime Minister and Mr X has to take over. Although it is the case, isn't it, Lisa, And um, that over the last 24, 48 hours in particular, a lot of this stuff with the Cabinet, you know, bickering amongst themselves and briefing against her, a lot of it is shaping for, is various figures shaping for the forthcoming leadership contest. That's part of what's driving that dynamic, isn't it? Well, yeah, but technically there can't be a leadership contest until December. Unless she steps down because it just becomes too much in the end. Well, unless she steps down because she's pressured by her own cabinet. You know, there's a mass, mass walkout of the cabinet. For instance, but look, you got a you got a sense of that today. You could have that, but the difficulty would be all be walking in different directions. Yeah, that's right. Which brings you back to this idea of you know the only way out of this impasse is some sort of cross-party solution. But even yesterday, when she got up from the got up after the you know humiliate her second humiliating defeat. Um, and, and that's not to include the the, the, the no confidence vote as well. Um, she got up and instead of saying, right, okay, you've told me you don't want my deal twice um, uh, in very loud and colourful terms. Um, the only way out of this is, is, you know, for me to talk to Jeremy Corbyn. You know, let's let's get cracking tomorrow on on something involving the customs union. But she's not going to go there. I mean, fi- finally, Lisa. I mean, you describe very vividly this kind of surreal atmosphere that, that that's over there at the moment is there no sense anywhere of you know that the kind of the sensible party no matter what actual political party they win that people will come together and 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 bring together what what you're sort of talking about just to get a hold on things to get a hold on a process which is spun so far out of control no you can see it yourself there's absolutely no sense this is a parliament which is complete, completely atomized um <clears throat> you know the labor party itself is is as split as the tory party but maybe not just as split today 
Um, but next week it may be. Um, uh, you know, there's talk of Tom Watson. There was talk of Tom Watson taking 100 MPs with him uh, to set up some sort of other party. Not quite now, but sometime in the future. Um, and that has uh, caused um, a lot of friction and hostility within the Labour Party, given how um, opposition to Jeremy Corbyn went um, two years ago. Um, not very well. Um, so, so no, it's 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 absolute chaos, absolute chaos, and it's very difficult to see how we're going to get out of this. Lisa Carroll, thanks very much for joining us. You're listening to the Irish Times. Fintan O'Toole, you're very welcome to the podcast. We just got off the line to Lisa Carroll in Westminster, and she really described a bizarre, surreal kind of a scene over there. And while I was listening to her, this quote from Seamus Heaney came up on my Twitter feed because that's the kind of Twitter feed I have and it says a great gulf yawns now between me and my retinue between craziness and reason and you know sometimes sometimes these things happen on Twitter <laughs> because that was exactly what she was describing in terms of the the complete vacuum of leadership that now exists at the at the top of the UK Yeah I mean it is absolutely extraordinary um, I think what it reminds us of is the you know, counterintuitive truth that lies behind all of this and that we can never lose sight of, which is it is not about the European Union fundamentally. You know, this, this may sound ridiculous. It's, it's, it's you know, it, it pretends that it's all about the EU. Of course, it's, it's about the UK. It's about Britain. This whole crisis has, has come about because there is a, a, a fundamental disjunction in relation to the way the British govern themselves. You know, the union itself is under enormous stress. You've got these huge social class and geographical divisions. Um, you you have this Westminster system, which doesn't really work anymore. And I think, you know, m- maybe I'm being overly optimistic, but perhaps out of all of this, what they might begin to realize is that this is a huge exercise in displacement. It's really not about the uh, the European Union. It's about how the British govern themselves, and what we're seeing is that they can't govern themselves. You know that 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 the the, the Brexit crisis has just really brought to a head things that have been simmering uh, for at least twenty years and that have been largely ignored and and haven't been given voice to, and eventually, you know, when you get the 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 match being put to that powder keg, which is really what the Brexit referendum did, what you see is the whole thing blowing up in your face. I mean, this is the Guy Fawkes moment, you know, Parliament has blown up and and there there is this absolute crisis of authority and it cannot be restored by simply seeing it only as being about Britain's relationship to the European Union. It's much, much more fundamental than that. Can I just ask about that? Because, I mean, I agree with everything that, that Fintan says there, but those deep-seated and, you know, profound problems in not just the British polity, but, you know, uh, but but British society, are, that may well be so. But it doesn't explain to me how to bring it back to a practical political level, how Mrs May doesn't have her attorney general squared off. There seems to there seems to be to be a massive failure of just nuts and bolts political organisation and uh, and 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 government authority that 
I, I find it harder to explain. Yeah, I, 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 I wouldn't disagree with that at all. Of course, when history goes wrong, it's usually because of a combination of long-term factors that have been sort of, you know, sliding, sliding slowly towards the cliff edge uh, on the one side. And then exactly as you're saying, Pat, you know, you also have then these 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 contingencies, these, you know, weird moments. Um, and of course, these contingencies are to do with the fact that you've got uh, the the worst prime minister in British history being succeeded by the second worst Um Probably the worst leader of the opposition in 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 British history, um, the, the the you know Joker being dealt from the pack in 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 the twenty seventeen general election, giving the DUP the balance of power, um, you know absurd figures like 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 Rees Mogg and Boris Johnson, uh, you know ha- having the fate of a nation in their hands, you know. So so you're absolutely right about uh, there, there are of course all of these very specific circumstances. Uh, and uh, they do lead to this kind of absurdity. I think. I think Theresa May, you know, the the one great achievement of the Brexiteers, uh, they they have one thing they can say, you know, historically, which is they made Theresa May look good. You, you know, to, to and that is an astonishing achievement. You know, to 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 take someone of May's obvious incompetence. And to create sympathy for her, because at least she's there, and at least you know she's she's trying to do something, and she's surrounded by people who have who have walked away from responsibility at every stage. I mean, there are one or two small exceptions, like Michael Gove, whatever you think of him. I don't think a great deal of him, but at least he stayed in, you know. But you you look at the you look at the Johnsons of this world. You look at the the the, the David Davises, you know, all of these people, who as soon as there was a whiff of having to take responsibility for their own actions, you know, just got the hell out of their retreats to the sidelines where they could, well, in Johnson's case, earn, you know, 300,000 euro a year for, for, for writing one column saying how dreadful Theresa May is, you know. So, so, so May was made to look good by the alternatives to her, but it doesn't, it, it, she doesn't really deserve a lot of sympathy, in fact, because when you look at it, I think what's not understood about May, it, it, you know, she she looks like a very ordinary, um, modest sort of person, but she is bonkers. You know, <laughs> she's bonkers in, in 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 almost the same way that the rest of them are. Well, she's bonkers about one thing, which is she is obsessive about being prime minister and remaining prime minister, and it's it's a it's a monomaniacal obsession. Nothing else matters. I mean, this is someone who, at the age of twelve, announced that she was going to be a Tory MP. And at the age of 17, told her friends she was going to be prime minister. That's not normal. You know? I mean, the, 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 that is a kind of strangeness. And if you, if you think about what May's done, she, uh, she, she abrogated responsibility during the Brexit referendum it, with just the same cynicism that people like Johnson did. You know, she, she did just enough to, to, to not um, fall out with David Cameron. And, and the remainers, she, you know, she did the very, very minimum necessary to say she was against uh, against leave, but she was signaling all the time to the leavers that her heart wasn't in it. And she was it, was, it was utterly opportunistic. And it worked for her because the Laurel and Hardy Act that that uh, we got with, with, with uh, Boris Johnson and Michael Gove, they knocked each other off the ladder and she was able to, to climb up to power. But every single thing she's done since then has a very simple explanation, you know, which is, 
she's thinking week by week, even day by day, how do I stay in number 10 Downing Street? And so everything has been short term and everything has been about what's the path of least resistance to me being prime minister for another week, another month, another year. And th- that's that's shaped everything. I mean, she she told the zealots everything they wanted to hear and she set out the red lines. She had no need to do that. She failed completely to build any kind of cross-party consensus. I mean, she could easily have come to power and said, this is a national crisis, we have a divided nation, and we're going to have to have something like a kind of cross-party consensus around what's the best way forward for Britain. She didn't do any of that. She didn't need to uh, call Article 50 when when she did, um, you know, to set the clock uh, going when she had absolutely no plan, no idea what was what, where, how, how it was going to end up. And every single decision she's made has been really about just holding power. She's actually, you know, be, behind all the apparent sincerity, she's actually one of the most uh, power-hungry, cynical politicians that, that we've seen but, for a long time. But, but, but also in a position of leadership, one of the least stable. And this is the the, yes. the, par- the paradox because, uh, I mean, you guys are much older than I am, of course, but I've been watching politics for oh, a- for, for ages. And, um, and, and one of the things, one of the characteristics of it is this sort of Darwinian quality so that, you know, if you are to become prime minister, here are the qualities that you will probably have to have or you simply won't make it. But, and we referred to this earlier on, but, and normally people who aren't good at politics don't get to become prime minister, but because of the very strange circumstances, not just uh, in the UK, but at the top of the Tory party, she has. Now, uh, all all politicians, and, and we see this all the time in this country, uh, want to tell audiences what the audiences want to hear. But the ones that are good at politics and rise to the top of politics are normally at least strategic about in, in the way that they do that. But she hasn't been strategic. So in two very important examples, she has told people what they wanted to hear and been found out immediately afterwards. So when she was agreeing the withdrawal treaty, she told she, and, and got a huge concession on the all-UK backstop, which was a huge concession from the EU and something they told the Irish government to stop talking about and uh, months, failed months before. To sell it. Failed to get it through. Again, with, you know, with the, 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 uh, the concessions she won on Monday night, she won those from the EU on the basis that she could pass the vote but, the next day Pat, and she failed. But Pat and Finda, can I offer a comparison, and this may seem like a slightly odd one, with a very different political figure with whom both of you are very well acquainted, and that's Brian Cowan who is a figure at a moment of great crisis in the history of, of our country. And that crisis revealed in a uh, in a humiliating uh, and very personal way his shortcomings as a politician. Now, how he came to be a leader of this country is very different and the impulses that led him there and what he felt psychologically about that are probably quite different. But the, what's similar is that the kind of the contingency which you refer to, to, to Finton, the accidents of history and of day-to-day politics which emerge, and then how they relate to the deeper, underlying streams in a way it's the same isn't it Cowan became went from being uh, went from being one kind of a figure to in the public mind being a very very different kind of a figure because the circumstances in which he found himself were so unforgiving of his faults well what's what's similar is power reveals and you know that's what happened to Brian Cowan. Being Taoiseach is quite difficult. So is being uh, Prime Minister and, you know, ministers who've led charmed lives 
are who've had shel- sheltered lives, as Mrs. May did in the Home Office. She was one of the longest-serving Home Office uh, Home Secretaries ever. Often find that when it comes to being Prime Minister, it's a completely different job, and they find that they're uh, they're not up to it. Very few, as spectacularly so as Mrs. May. Fintan, what do you think? And I suppose that the, the last bit of that parallel, which I which I tried to draw, is that Cowan had to go, both for his own party and for the government. Yeah, you know, I I, I think I think you're absolutely right. So. Um, there, there are similarities, um, uh, two particular ones. One is that Brian Cowan was talked up enormously by the media, including, you know, a lot of the Irish Times uh, and, and, and RTE and everybody else, you know, as a kind of genius who was just waiting in the wings, a brilliant, brilliant politician, where there was absolutely no evidence for it at, at all. You know, and, and, and media do have a serious responsibility in relation to this. There's a tendency to latch on somebody um, as the next big thing for, for, for no apparent reason, you know, and, and, and decide that they're a kind of political genius. Um, and and that didn't help uh, Cowan in the end, right? So so he was he was talked up and 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 then um, you know turned out to be pretty hollow. Um, of course, the other parallel is that neither May nor um, Cowan came to the office of of Prime Minister Stroke Taoiseach through winning an election in the first place, right? And and that does matter. So so both of them sort of inherited the office because the incumbent resigned uh, under pressure. Cameron resigned because of Brexit. Bertie resigned because of the uh, tribunals. And therefore, um, they, 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 they got the office in a way that was not fully tested, right? So it wasn't even tested in a general election. And that has a kind of weird effect, I think, on people because it, it, it means that they, they're, they're, always, they're trying to play catch up from the beginning. They're trying to establish an authority I think in relation to the first, I mean, I'm writing about May for, for, for the paper on Saturday, and uh, the, the uh, analogy that struck me is, you know, she, she, she always talks about herself in relation to the cricketer Jeff Boycott, the English cricketer who famously, you know, could stay at the, at the wicket for, for, you know, hours and hours on end, you know, building up run, you know, instead of hitting it for six, he'd get one run and then one run and then one run and would build up over time, you know. And that's her self-image, right, which is that she's this kind of doughty, resilient figure who will just stick at it and win in the end. But the problem is, of course, that that um, boycott won things and she doesn't, doesn't, hasn't won anything. What she's much boycott more like, could hit the ball, you know, when it was yeah, bowled at him. No. He could hit it. But what, 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 what she's actually much more like, I think, is, is uh, Tim Henman. You know, <laughs> you know the way that the Brits, until Andy Murray came along, there would always be a next big thing who was going to end this agonizing drought of, of, of uh, English winners in Wimbledon, you know. And, and God love them. They'd be talked up and talked up and talked up, you know, and there'd be a wave of patriotic sentiment and they'd be, you know, just about to win and then they'd you know they'd get to the quarterfinal or whatever and they'd, they'd, they'd have four double faults in a row and lose and you know it, it, May suffers to some extent from the fact that she was ludicrously overrated I mean she actually had no real achievements um, she, remember she's the person at the home office who was really responsible for one of the nastiest scandals in modern British history which is the Windrush scandal she got away with it because when it came out she was Prime Minister and she 
she could control it and and her unfortunate successor uh, had to take the blame but the windor scandal is absolutely astonishing which is the the the, the, the harassing uh, and in many cases, the deportation of elderly Caribbeans who had entered Britain legally in the 1950s and early 1960s. I mean, just for pure malice, you know, pure anti-immigrant malice going after these people. And I think this is the other thing you have to remember about May, which is that the one thing she seems to really, really care about is, is immigration. You know, she's a, a deeply anti-immigrant politician. And this, this matters because this is the way in which she shaped Brexit. If you, if you look at where she's ended up, the starting point is that the real red line is controlling immigration. Why did this become such a red line? Again, largely May's fault. When May was in the Home Office, she, she was the one with, with Cameron, but she was, she was the, the, the minister in charge, pushing forward this idea that they were going to get immigration into Britain down to the tens of thousands. Nobody believed that this was either possible or desirable. It was a false piece of rhetoric that was being put out. But it had disastrous consequences because what happened then was that you got this thing every every year. You know, it was supposed to be below 100,000. It's at 250,000. It's out of control. It's out of control. And this this very much fed into Brexit itself, you know, which was people saying, we have to take back control of our borders. Everything is out of control. The government set these targets and hasn't been able to meet them. That that is, to a large extent, May's fault. You know, and 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 this obsession with immigration shaped her red lines. You know, so so she's she's been willing to put Britain into. A, it's a terrible deal for them. You know, I mean, the withdrawal agreement puts them into second class EU membership. But the one thing they get out of it is they can end freedom of movement. It's it's not a price that I think any sane person would think is worth paying. But for May, in a sense, it is. That, that, that is her mentality. And, and so she bears a lot more responsibility for what has happened, I think, than um, m- most people tend to assign to her. Fintan, thanks always for joining us. And that's it for today's podcast. Thanks to Pat, to Fintan and to Lisa for joining us today. Thanks also to our producer, Declan Conlon, and our engineer, JJ Vernon. Remember that you can subscribe to us on iTunes iTunes or your preferred podcast provider, you can also find us at irishtimes.com slash podcasts. Your views are very welcome indeed. You can mail me at hlinahan at irishtimes.com or you can usually find me on Twitter. Until the next time, thanks for listening.